<laughs> and you're here, you're here. All right. Well, good, uh, good morning, men. It is great to be here with you and uh, spend some time talking about giving. And just already, I just want to give you a, a thumbs up for actually choosing to come to this seminar. So and I'm glad that he made sure you knew. But uh, man, this is, a, this is a challenging topic, but one that uh, I think is just vital, just so important. So let me have a word of prayer, and then I'll introduce a little bit about who I am, and then we'll, we'll jump into our topic. Father God, I just want to thank you for a, a new day. Thank you that you, in your grace and your generosity, have created us in your image. And even in our brokenness, our fallenness, our sin, you have reached out to us and you have redeemed us in Christ. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light and you have uh, adopted us as sons in your family, members of your kingdom, and you've given us a calling and a purpose in life, given your Holy Spirit who uh, would dwell within us to change us, to lead us and guide us. And even now we ask Holy Spirit, you'd open our eyes and ears, spiritually speaking, to what you want us to to hear and uh, who you want us to be. Thank you for Hume Lake. Thank you for the incredible things that you've done at this place over the years and you continue to do even today. And uh, we love you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, just a little bit about who I am. My name's Josh uh, Hawley and sorry if you were expecting the senator from Missouri, uh, it's not me, but uh, maybe he's coming next weekend, I'm not sure. But uh, I'm a pastor uh, in Fresno, just down the hill. I've actually been a pastor now for over 20 years. I uh, was at the Fresno Evangelical Free Church, now called The Bridge, and now I'm at a church called The Well Community Church. I've been there for about six years. I'm a, we're a multi-site church, so I, I'm a campus pastor at our Fig Garden campus and also one of our, at our North Campus, one of our gatherings there, and I kind of oversee as a director the other campus pastors and our equipping and connections team. So it uh, keeps me busy, but I love being there. I love being a part of what God is doing at The Well and our just our partnership and opportunities to connect here at Hume as well. Uh, more personal side, my uh, wife Chris and I have actually been married now for 26 years. We met uh, back in college, yeah. So yeah, praise God for that. Marriage is good. I highly recommend it. Um, we, uh, we also have three sons. Uh, Noah is 23, our oldest son. He just graduated from Cal Baptist down in Riverside, and he is a mechanical engineer. Um, in the Bay Area. He's at Fre in Fremont right now, and he's, he's working, and so we're proud of him. It was bittersweet to, of course, see him move uh, away, but uh, he'd already moved away sort of for college. And then our second uh, oldest son, Sam, is a junior at Fresno State, and he is a, a civil engineer major. He's on the cross-country and track team there, and so we get to still travel and watch uh, some sports with him. It's fun. And then our youngest son, uh, Gabe, Gabriel, just graduated high school. He's working at a gym called Fit Republic, and um, he's kind of figuring out what his next step is in terms of school and vocation. But one of the things we're thankful with him is he had uh, some mental health struggles with uh, OCD and some things like that. And he's really turned his uh, heart open to the Lord. I would say he kind of hardened his heart to God, maybe in even some anger over that. Um, and just, you know, with a lot of prayer, patience, perseverance, um, all the Ps, right? We just, uh, we've seen him begin to really open his heart to the Lord and, and get more immersed in church culture, and we're very thankful for that um, over this last year or so of his life. But um, today, we're talking about giving, and um, I know that this, this is a topic, you know, as, as, I, as I think about my, my walk with Christ, I grew up with a Christian worldview, but Christ didn't really transform my heart in my growing up years, and I really lived sort of as a prodigal son through high school and even starting college. 
just uh, to give you an idea, my, my nickname when I graduated high school was Alcoholi, right? So that's just that whole lifestyle was what I was living. But the Lord got a hold of my heart when I was 19 and really opened my eyes to the depth of my sin, my need for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which I did not appreciate or really fully comprehend prior to that. And in that, I discovered that, that the Christian life brought great joy. And I have a joy now living for Christ. And I think I had been deceived into thinking, man, if I, if I surrender to Christ, it's going to be just a boring, awful lifestyle. But no, it's actually joyful overall, right? But then there's aspects of the Christian life that, that sometimes we question, well, what about that? Will that truly bring joy to my life? And giving could be one of those areas that can be difficult in our discipleship. Um, so, so you guys know up front, a lot of what I talk about comes from, we have a ministry called Foundations where we launch uh, small groups. And one of the weeks we spend time talking about this very t- uh, topic. And so much of what I share comes from that uh, curriculum. And this is a difficult topic, but it's important. It's important because uh, God wants our hearts. And when we think about where our hearts will gravitate towards, certainly our treasures in this life are going to be something that our hearts are going to naturally gravitate towards and attach to. Um, I say it's an important topic because God's Word talks about it so often and frequently. Uh, For example, uh, a topic that, of course, is very important would be the topic of prayer, right? And prayer is actually talked about in Scripture about 500 times, about 500 Bible verses. Uh, Faith, another very important topic, is talked about just a little less than that. But our possessions, our money, there's actually about 2,000 Bible verses devoted to this subject. So we're going to go ahead and try to cover all of those this morning. We'll start in Genesis. No, just, just kidding. I won't do that to you. Um, But, you know, Jesus himself follows the same pattern as the overall pattern of Scripture where he talks more about money and possessions than he does even prayer or faith. The only topic he talks more about would be the kingdom of God. Sixteen of his 38 parables actually refer to money and resources. So so Jesus then knows the power that money can have in our lives. And he also knows that it can be used either to... um, help us accomplish God's purposes, his kingdom purposes in this world and through our lives, or it can be used to sort of derail us away from what God would have for us. And he says this very bluntly in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's kind of like you can't really be a Giants and a Dodgers fan. You got to choose one, right? But no, but, but you got, you, it's God or money. And he's blunt because he knows, again, it's a matter of the heart. It's God or money, but it can't be both in terms of who's our master. Um, if, if you're like me, you might like to think, well, I don't really think money's much of an issue for me. I don't think I struggle with this topic um, Or maybe you do, and that's why you chose to be here, which I say that's awesome. But, you know, for me, I might think that way. But but then I realize, no, the allure of what money claims to offer um, can be so tempting. You know, the the idea that if I just have enough money, I can have um, a lot of power. I can sort of satisfy any pleasure that I have. Or it'll make me secure. It, It will make me safe in this life. It will open up all the doors that I need. It will help me sort of be the master of my own destiny. 
Now, when you consider some of the things I've just said and even looking at what Jesus said there in Matthew 6, we might say, so what should we do then, right? Should we just sort of sell everything, uh, all live together, maybe move up here somewhere in the mountains and just have a commune, right? And uh, I would say probably no. I mean, there may be some of you called to do that. I might question, ask a few questions if you did tell me that, but I don't think that's the case because God actually created a system in this world where we need money. It's a necessary uh, commodity of life. We, need, we pr- uh, produce things. We sell things. We are, we are forced into relationship with each other through the economic systems that we have, even in a broken world, that we still have in this world. So money is actually a necessity because it's not a money issue. Money is actually neutral. What it is is, again, it's a heart issue. And that's what Jesus is bringing up in Matthew 6. So we're only going to look at two passages of Scripture actually today as we consider this topic of giving and being generous. First will be Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn over there. We have a parable of Jesus here. And I'll just give you a little context as you're uh, maybe looking that up. Um, Jesus teaches in parables frequently, right? We, we know that if we've been around church for a while, I've been reading our Bibles for a while. And it's interesting because the other rabbis didn't really do that in his day. That was unique to him in a lot of ways. But Jesus uses parables because he's trying to connect with people in their everyday life experiences. And what he does is he takes an everyday life experience that we're familiar with and he teaches then a deeper spiritual truth, something about the kingdom of God through that. And a lot of his His deep theology comes out of actually parables. And so starting in verse 14, we have a parable here. Let me just read. Oh, I'm sorry. If I didn't say the chapter. Chapter 25. I'm sorry. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. That That would be helpful. There's quite a few chapters in Matthew. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Jesus says this. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So a few things here is that in this parable, the master represents God. The servants then represent God's people. That would be us who follow Christ, um, and that's who's represented here. The talent, um, we might hear that word and instantly think, okay, so like, playing a guitar or being able to build, you know, something out of wood or sing or whatever we might think would be the talent. But here actually in this particular parable, talent refers to a unit of money. In fact, one talent represented about 20 years worth of wages. Uh, One talent could weigh anywhere from 58 to 80 pounds. So this is actually a pretty considerable amount of money that the master here is entrusting his servants with. Okay, and what we're going to see here is the key issue from this parable for what we're talking about this morning is the sense of ownership. Like, who does this talent belong to? Does it belong to the master who represents God? Or does it belong to the servants who represent us, we who follow God? Who's the owner? So let's go to verse 16. He who had received the five talents went and at once traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he, uh, also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So we see instantly here contrast how the three different servants, two of them kind of basically say, okay, I'm going to 
be a steward with this money that my master's given me. The other guy takes it and sort of buries it. So then moving on to verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so you'll notice here that the response of the master is a response of joy. Because when we learn to be stewards of what God has given us, that he's the owner, we're the stewards. The response actually of God here is joy. And when God responds to our lives with joy, we're going to also experience the joy of God in our lives. So the, the, the response to being a steward, seeing God as owner, is joy. And then we see a different situation in verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours? Now, this last servant, um, you know, when it came time to settle accounts, he knows he's in trouble because he's done nothing with this particular talent. And what you see here, you kind of say, well, what, what's going on here? It seems like he's sort of blaming the master, like, hey, you're a hard guy, and so here's your talent. You know what? Just take it back. Now, when we look at this, we might say, well, okay, so he was afraid, or he, what, he's late. We don't know exactly his motives, but one commentator brings out, I think, is, is a pretty interesting insight about this. He says this, um, if the master failed to return, the servant wanted to be able to keep the talent for himself. He did not want to deposit the talent in a bank where it would be recorded that the talent belonged to the master. So isn't that interesting? There's a sense here where this servant actually viewed this as, hey, my master's given me 20 years worth of income, and this is mine. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bury it. Nobody will know that I have it other than the master. He's going away on a long trip. Maybe he'll get sick and die or somebody will kill him or he'll just forget about this. And when the time is right, I'll just take that money and it belongs to me. I'm the owner. Whereas you see the other two servants said, hey, we've been entrusted with something pretty incredible here. We're going to put this to work. And it doesn't belong to us. We're stewards. And, and we're going to put it to work. And, and then there's joy as a result, right? So we see that contrast. Notice also how this servant views God or his master, which would then lend to a view of God. I knew you to be a hard man. You see, the view that we have of God, he had a view that his, his master was hard. Even though he'd given him 20 years worth of income and just said, hey, put it to work. You get to live off of it, whatever. Just put it to work. Um, he viewed him as hard, as harsh. And you see, the way we view God will affect all aspects of our lives as well. If, if we view God as, as harsh, as stingy towards us, it will lead us then to a scarcity kind of mindset. And so when we have certain possessions, when we have certain resources, we'll feel like I've got to cling tightly because I'm, you know, I'm, I could lose this any day and God's going to, God doesn't want to provide for me. So I just, I've got to hold on to it. I'm going to be stingy with what I have because, because God is harsh. 
And, and the actual, what we see here is actually something quite different, which Jesus is teaching this parable saying, trust God with what you have and just, just see what happens. As, as you're a good steward, as you're generous, as you recognize him as the owner, just see what God might be able to do with that. Because you see, we actually have a generous God. Think about it for, for just a moment, just in everyday life even. You know, we, we were created and we live in God's creation. And that's very accentuated when you come up to a beautiful place like, like Hume Lake. We just see the beauty of God's creation here. And, uh, you know, God didn't have to make creation beautiful. He didn't have to make sunsets look so good and the mountains be so majestic and the ocean be so incredible or flowers or trees or even all the different animals. You know, driving up, I saw a couple of deer and I was just like, wow, right on the road. I said, Thank you, God. I got to see those deer. That was amazing. But creation could have been like just awful, just ugly, right? I mean, and some parts of it in this fallen world are, but it could have all been like a, just a, a desert or whatever. Like, but no, God chose to give us a beautiful creation, let alone the universe, which is incredibly fascinating with all the stars and planets. He's a creative God who's generous by giving us just this beauty to look at. Or you think about food, right? I mean, we need food to, to survive, but it didn't have to be delicious. It could have been awful. <laughs> and God's given us the ability to even make delicious recipes. And, and sometimes we make it, it's not necessarily always good for us. But still, it tastes good, dang it. And, and you know what? Um, God didn't have to do that, but he's generous. So he gave us this ability to cook food and make all these different things and for food to be great. You know? And I'm, I'm kind of a foodie, so I, I love trying different foods all the time. Um, or think about just like sex within marriage, procreation, sex. Like, yeah, we need that to survive as a species and to continue, but... Again, it didn't have to be enjoyable. It could have been not a great experience, right? Um, but God in his grace, in his generosity, when, when done in a way that honors him, you know, procreation sex is, is a wonderful thing. And so we see reflected in creation the generous heart of God. But nowhere do we see the generous heart of God reflected more powerfully than in the gospel itself, right? Um, we read, for example, in the book of Ephesians, Chapter 2, but God being what? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God is rich in mercy. And I don't know about you, but I use up that mercy a lot. <laughs> Amen. We need a God who's rich not sparing or stingy with mercy, but rich in mercy. I need it every single day of my life when I sin against God. Or what does Romans 8 tell us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is so generous, he gave his son to die in our place. You know, while we were still sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. Not when we were making all these great choices and doing things the way we should, but in our rebellion against God, whether it's in our actions, in our heart, or both, God didn't spare his own son to die for us. So the gospel clearly puts on display the generous heart of God for humanity, that he would come to us in a human body and he would choose to die on our behalf and then rise from the dead and then even as followers of Christ to pour out his Holy Spirit to be generous and say, I'm gonna be with you every day. I'm gonna live within you. 
I mean, you know, we want to spend time with the people we love, right? And, and this idea that God is actually saying, I want to have a communion, a relationship, an ongoing, constant relationship with you through the presence of my spirit. It's incredible, God's generous heart. So for today's purposes, the key idea for us to draw from this parable is that our God, who has the generous heart, is the owner of all that we have. He's our creator, our source, and our provider. He's the owner and investor who then entrusts us with worldly wealth. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So understanding God is the owner of it all is the first principle in managing it well. The second one is understanding that we've been called then to be good stewards of all that God has given us. To wisely manage God's possessions. To, to not say, these are my things, Lord, but no, Lord, these are, these are yours. And he's entrusted all of us with different amounts, just like the parable even indicates. But then God, how can I be a good steward with that? And you know what's interesting is when we choose to handle money God's way, it actually leads us to make much wiser choices um, really in all areas of life in dealing with finances. It becomes easier then to budget. It becomes easier then to save. It becomes easier to give. It becomes easier to invest wisely and to make wiser financial decisions. Now, just so you, you know, in my personal life, I, I, I want to say, and I kind of hinted at this already, but making... Um, generosity and giving and tithing and all that as part of my personal discipleship was not like instantaneous for me early on when I came to Christ at 19. I didn't really see this as a, as a necessary part of discipleship. I saw it more as an optional part, uh, to be honest with you. Things like sharing my faith and serving in the church and learning how to, you know, get in the word and pray, all that was, yeah, live in community. All those things were, yeah, I'll jump into those things right away. But, but giving Ugh, I, you know, and, and for me, it wasn't because I viewed God as harsh. That wasn't really my hang-up. For me, it was more being a child of the 80s, growing up, seeing, you know, the televangelists on TV and, you know, all these guys who were, you know, they had like crazy suits and they'd get on and they'd have like a handkerchief or something. They'd be like, hey, if you, uh, if you buy this from me for 100 bucks, right, then, then I, will, uh, I will send it to you. It's anointed and you'll, God will give you 1,000, you know, and I saw people doing this and they're, and there are all these scandals, and I just thought, you know what, I just, when it comes to the money part of religion, I don't need to give, you know. So it's ironic that I kind of didn't want to give to organized religion, and I've been a pastor for over 20 years. But regardless of that, um, that was more my thing. And the other thing was I just felt like I didn't have much money. I mean, I was, I was working at Sizzler Restaurant, you know, serving tables. I'm like, I'm not like rolling in it right now. I'm not making it rain doing this. I'm just trying to pay my bills and survive on top ramen and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> However, with that, I would say I was, I was quite an emotional giver. So if you know what I mean, like I, when I felt like it, you know, like sometimes a lot of things in life we do when we feel like it, but we can't do that when it goes, you know, showing up to work, for example, we can't do that. But, but I felt like it. So I was at a missions conference. I remember uh, I was 19 and uh, maybe I was 20. Anyway, I was 19 or 20. I was at a missions conference, 20,000 college students from all over the world. It was incredible. It was in Urbana, Illinois. And I remember at the end of the thing, they, they, we had communion together, we're worshiping together. You're just spiritually, you're on, a, you're on a wave. And then they had this video they put on for kids, I think Compassion International. And would you give to the kids who are starving? And I was like, oh, yes, Lord, I will give. <laughs> and I pulled my wallet out and I literally put all the cash in my wallet and I put it in the bucket when it came around. And I'm like, I'm giving to this cause. Um, and then I forgot that 
hey, when we leave the conference, we're getting on a bus to take us to O'Hare Airport. The bus is taking, you know, we're getting on a plane, we're going to fly to San Francisco, and then I have to drive back to Fresno. And I, I realized uh, I didn't have any money left. <laughs> so I'm like nudging the guy next to me like, hey, dude, uh, can, can you buy this cheeseburger for me? Because like I'm out of cash. Sorry, <laughs> you know, uh, you need gas money to get home. Sorry, I don't have it. Uh, can you pay for all the gas? So very non-strategic, very emotional in my giving, very optional. Uh, basically, when it comes down to it, even though I may not have said it this way, I viewed myself as the owner of what I had and not a steward of what God had given me. So over time, that, that changed, and I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But, you know, it's interesting because God wants us to step out in faith. Just like anything else in the Christian life requires faith to step out, whether it's sharing our faith or even taking the time to, to come to a men's retreat. You know, you, many of you probably made sacrifices to be here. These all take steps of faith, and so does being generous and giving. Malachi 3, uh, God even says, test me in this and see what I might do. Um, so, so how about you, though? You know, as I've shared about my struggle, and sometimes it can even be an ongoing struggle to keep trusting God, how about you? Would, would you say I'm behaving more like an owner or a steward with what God has given me? So with an understanding that God is generous and that he's the owner of it all and that he generously entrusts us with his resources, we might ask then, what does it look like to be a faithful steward with our money and resources? So I want to go to the other text then, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 17. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. And again, a little context. This is a letter written by the apostle Paul. He's writing to uh, Timothy. He was a young man who Paul had uh, uh, discipled up and raised up, and he'd been called to be a pastor. And at the time of this letter being written, uh, it's written to Timothy as he, as he pastors the church in the city of Ephesus. And I actually got to visit this city a couple years ago. It's a fascinating place, one of the largest excavated uh, sites for a biblical city in the world. It's in modern-day Turkey, and it was a very wealthy city. If you might recall in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 19, where, where Paul goes to the city and people come to faith in Christ there. Uh, there. There's black magic they're repenting from and all kinds of crazy stuff. But one of the marks of this city is that it was very wealthy. I walked through some of the mansions that people lived in that they've excavated. And I, I mean, they rival the, the largest mansions that we have today in our cities. Uh, they had the most inc- one of the most incredible libraries of the ancient world and just commerce and trade, and all kinds of stuff going on. But this was a wealthy city. And so Paul then, uh, listen to how verse 17 starts. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. I want you to think about that last phrase for just a second. Some translations might say that which is life indeed. Here the ESV, it says that which is truly life. Think about that for your own life or people you know. I think that's what we really want, is we want to know that I live my life to the fullness. I live the life that God intended for me. If you remember in uh, Braveheart, right, William Wallace, somebody tells him, hey, you should be scared because you might die. And he says, hey, all men die. 
but not all men truly live. And what we're told here is that there is a way to know how to live that brings that which is truly life. Notice what these verses don't tell us is truly life. It doesn't say if you can be famous and have a bunch of followers on Instagram, that's not truly life. Or if you have the most toys when you die. Or if you have more people under you in the org chart than the next guy. Or if every pleasure that you ever wanted to be satisfied can get satisfied. Nope, that's not what we're told here. What we're told here in verse 18 is to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. There's a sense of as we are generous with our time and our talents and our treasures, and we're really focusing more on the treasures today, but, but that's the key to true life. Now, I want to be clear, it's not a salvation. We don't do that for salvation. Salvation is only through Christ, through Christ alone, in faith in Christ and what he has done, his grace. It's a completely free gift, but a product of that salvation, a product of receiving that generosity from God through the gospel is that he changes our hearts and we become people who realize, hey, true life isn't in the trappings that the world has told me. Those, those are falsehoods. Those are lies. That is not going to be true life. True life is going to be found right here in living for the glory of God and being generous in, in good works and being ready to share. And one of the things that we're told here is for the rich in this present age. Now, I know at certain times in my life, I would look at that verse, and, and maybe you're doing that even today, and, and just saying, oh, okay, so I think for the rest of this message, I can sort of tune out because I'm not the rich. The rich is not me. It's Don't look at him right now, but it's that guy over there who's got the car I want, you know, or whatever. Um, but, but think about this for just a moment when it comes to are we rich or not. Were you able to eat every meal last week? Like you didn't miss a dinner. Now maybe you did because you're busy and you skipped it or you didn't want to eat, but did you at least have the option to eat? Um, that would actually be wealth in our world today. Or to put it another way, if you make at least $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of worldly wealth overall, global wealth. Um, like me, if you got up this morning and had a choice of what clothes to wear, to, Maybe here you don't at the retreat, you just brought like one thing to wear. But, but most days you probably have a choice of clothing. Um, or you have a car that you can drive, maybe even a choice of cars. Well, brothers, that is actually considered wealth in our world today. So, so whether we feel like it or not, when um, Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, says, hey, God has something to tell the rich in this present age, that, that would include us. We would be considered rich in a, in a global perspective. So... Uh, if you think about what God has blessed you with, with your clothing, with your food, with your job, with your friends, your family, and, and, and you might, again, maybe you already are asking this question. If so, just keep asking. And if not, maybe begin asking, Lord, what do you want me to do with my resources? Or maybe even reframe it as a prayer. God, what do you want to do with your resources that you've entrusted me with and if, if you're a little older, like myself, you, you can look back on your life and say, I wish I'd done some things differently when it comes to money, like maybe gotten out of debt quicker or gotten less debt, maybe invested a little better, maybe saved a little more. And that's good to, to learn from our past and hopefully teach others. And, you know, it's, it's not, um, I've heard it said this way, that it's not, um, 
It's not so much experience that makes us wise, it's evaluated experience that makes us wise, right? And learning from the evaluated experience of others is also a great way to become wise. But, um, but then we also want to ask, but what's my motive, though? If I, if I do want to have a better financial situation, is, is my motive only so I can sort of have more reserved? Which I'm not saying that that's wrong in and of itself, but is there a, is there a more transcendent motive? Is there something larger which would say, Lord, it's so that I can become a great steward with what you entrust me with, so that I can be more generous and be a greater blessing to others. Let that be uh, a motive for us. Because, because notice here, he says that God has uh, called us to set our hope not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, just like I've said already, the, the issue here is not riches or money. They are neutral. In fact, side note, it says here he's given it to us to enjoy. So there's, there's a sense where God wants us to have some joy, you know, uh, good quality vacations and, and some of the, the pleasures and joys that money can bring to our lives. That, that's there to enjoy these things. But, but the question here is where is my hope put right now? Like truly, is it... Is it on God or is it on the riches? Do I find more security in the fact that I'm eternally bought at a price through Jesus Christ or is it on what sort of my bank statement says? Because that is what is uncertain. And a mind that puts its hope on the uncertainty of riches will not be secure. And God wants us to be secure. Let let me illustrate this. There was a study Harvard University did some time ago and they asked a simple question um, how much um, money would you need to earn annually to feel secure, right? Simple question. So here's what the, uh, the studies generally revealed. Those who made $30,000 a year said, I need to make $60,000, okay? Those who made $50,000 a year said, I need to make $100,000. So you kind of see where this is going, right? Those who made $250,000 a year said $500,000. Those who said 500,000 a year, or who made 500,000 a year said a million. But here's what's interesting. Those who already earned a million dollars a year said they would need to earn $5 million a year to feel secure. So it's interesting that as the income levels rose, the sense of insecurity in money actually began to rise as well. Because you see, it's where we set our hope. If it's on the uncertainty of riches, we will constantly be in a state of uncertainty and anxiety. And God wants us to have a certain hope. He wants us to have a confident hope. And so we are given here the roadmap to true life is to be rich with what God has given us because we recognize that he has been generous towards us. Jesus even said this in Acts 20 verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that principle is easy to affirm, but it can be challenging to live out. So what does it mean to take action on some of these then principles that we've talked about? I want to give just three practical ideas to you, and then that will kind of end our time together. But first, when it comes to giving, okay, three things is we want to make it regular, proportionate, and I would also say in community. Okay, let me explain each one of those statements. First of all, regular just means make it consistent, right? Let it be consistent. Just like anything in life, consistency is key. So whether that means 
showing up to work, whether that means being there for your family, whether that means getting on an exercise plan or a diet plan or whatever, the same is true with with giving. It needs to be regular and consistent, right, to become an actual practice of our lives, to become something that can be transformative. The second thing, though, is proportionate. So again, we don't all give the same amount of money because we all have different um, resources at our fingertips. Even in the parable, you saw that, right? One had five talents, one had two, one only had one. So the expectations on each one was different. It was in proportion to what they were entrusted with, right? Um, So a biblical word for proportionate giving is the tithe, okay? 10%, the idea that you give 10% of what you earn to wherever you're spiritually sort of fed, your spiritual community, and then uh, live off the 90%. And then, of course, there's all these free will offerings and other ways to be generous with people. Um, many people would say today, well, make that a give 10%, save 10%, and then live off the 80 um, and do as you see fit with that 80%. And, you know, it's fun. My youngest son just recently got his first job, and so I remember sitting with him and kind of explaining it to him, like, okay, let's transfer 10% of that into your savings account. Let's set aside 10% that you're going to give to the church this Sunday, but then, man, you've got all this money, so you can walk over to Carl's Jr. and eat all the Western bacon double cheeseburgers you want and go out with your friends in the movies and all that stuff with this 80%, right? Now, someday when you move out, you're going to learn that you've got to pay bills. <laughs> but, but still, save 10, give 10, live off of 80. Now, you might ask, where does this whole idea come from, though, this idea of the tithe? I've heard it, but where does it actually originate? Well, um, it first appears actually in the book of Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, where Abraham gives a tenth of his possessions to Melchizedek, okay? And that's a whole story that you could read, but that's where it first appears. Then in Genesis 28, Jacob actually uh, vows to God that he's going to give a tenth of his possessions to God. But then where we really see it start to take shape is as the nation of Israel is formed um, in the Pentateuch, in the books of uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it really starts to take shape as a practice of the people, um, and other forms, again, like I said, of free will offerings and giving also begin to, to take place. Then we see in 2 Chronicles 31 that under the reign of King Hezekiah, it's actually a sign of spiritual revival when the people begin to uh, give their gifts at the temple. And so, so, okay, so that's Old Testament. But what does the New Testament say then to us about giving? Well, here's an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what we see here is actually the exhortation to be a cheerful giver, not a legalistic tither. Uh, In other words, there is no command in the New Testament to give a tithe, a 10%. Um, But what we're called here is to to consider what God is leading us to give and then to do it joyfully and cheerfully. Now, even though the tithe isn't mandated in the New Testament, I don't think that means we should throw the idea out altogether. Because if God's people in the Old Testament use that as sort of a marker to say, okay, we're going to make this a goal to give 10%, and that's a way we're going to express our recognition that God owns it all by not keeping it all to ourselves. And we're going to start there with the 10% and then move on to free will offerings and et cetera beyond that. That might be a great marker for us today also as God's people to say that's a great starting point. 
And then let's see if I can be even more generous than that uh, above and beyond. But again, I want to be clear. That's not a a New Testament uh, command to believers. My exhortation would be spend time in God's word for yourself. Wrestle with God in prayer. Get uh, wisdom, godly counsel from godly people who seem to be good stewards of what God has given them. And then make your own decisions about what it means to give generously. Now, getting back to uh, a little bit of my story in this, my wife Chris and I did get to a point, I, I, as I mentioned before, I didn't see it as part of my discipleship, but then I came to a point where I realized, wow, we as a married couple, we want to start giving 10% of what we earn uh, to our spiritual community. So at the time, it was the Fresno uh, Evangelical Free Church. Now it's the Well Church, right, in Fresno there. Um, but here's the problem we had. We actually couldn't do it when we finally made that decision. Um, the reason we couldn't do it is because we had a lot of debt. And we were actually in bondage because of that debt. So it wasn't a matter of not being willing, you know, you don't have to wait till everything's perfect before you can give. But we didn't have the capacity at that point to give a 10%. However, did that mean we should just, if maybe you're in that position as well today or you know somebody who is, does that mean we should just sort of be like that, stu- that uh, servant in the, fir- in the parable? Like, well, I can't give 10%, so I'm just going to give nothing. And I would say no. Can you give 3%, 1%? Do that, but do it consistently, regularly. When my wife and I started on the journey of consistent giving as part of our discipleship, we started at 2%, but we made sure it was every check, right? Before that, it was like, hey, this month we'll give 10%. This month we'll give 0%. This month we'll do whatever, right? But no, now it's, we're gonna give 2% regularly, consistently, And then after a few months, we bumped that up to 3%. And then a few months later, we bumped that up to 4%. And then as we began to bump up the giving, we began to see the capacity and ability to actually pay off our debts quicker. And then we began to actually get some money in savings. And then once we got to that 10%, we're like, wow. And now some of those friends of ours who send us missionary letters or nonprofit leaders who need support, like we can actually start thinking about giving to some of them. I could never do that before. And then all of a sudden you realize, Lord, there actually is a joy in being generous. Your word's true. There's a joy to it. It's not easy to get there, but there's a joy to it. And friends, I would, I would encourage you, if, if you're in a place like that or know somebody who is, to feel that burden that you have to instantly give 10% because we gotta be responsible. So if somebody's in debt, if somebody cannot pay their bills or they cannot make their debt repayments, they shouldn't be tithing. But can they give 1%? And can they trust God to help them over time incrementally build that up. And what you often see happen is just like what I described, is as that giving starts to rise, that debt starts to reduce. And it's amazing how God can bless in those ways. Although let me not, um, let me not say it would not still be difficult. When we make these kinds of decisions, like any decision we make in our faith to grow, you will face opposition. You know, have you ever noticed like maybe it happened to you or somebody you know, like somebody decides they're gonna get baptized and declare their faith in front of the church and they've got two weeks to get there, and then everything just, you know, all hell breaks loose for those two weeks, right? Things like that. Opposition comes, right? There's an enemy who doesn't want us to be transformed into Christ-likeness. And uh, I know, I remember uh, one time for Chris and I, my wife Chris, we uh, were facing some unexpected bills and some real challenges, and I thought, oh my gosh, how are we going to be able to stay consistent to this giving that we've committed ourselves to? And, uh, I was thinking about maybe, you know, stopping for a while. But 
she spent some time praying and she wrote in her prayer journal and she shared this with me. She wrote this, I need you, Lord. I need to hope in you, walk with you, rely on you and you alone. Please water these dry bones, Lord. Breathe life into my soul. I need you so much. Please, Lord, provide today. And then she wrote this, $2,000 for bills, house repairs, and other things needed. Shoes for Gabe, etc." And, you know, she shared that with me. And it's like, okay, you know, I mean, I'm sure God's going to water the dry bones, whatever that means exactly, honey. But I, I don't know, you know, $2,000. I mean, okay. But it was interesting. That very day, later on that afternoon, we got an envelope in the uh, mail. And it was from some friends of ours who had moved out of town. And, and they had a little note in there that just said, we were praying for you, and we felt like the Lord put in our heart to send this to you. And inside the envelope was, guess what? It was, it was a check for $2,000. And it was just like, wow. Now, God doesn't always do that, okay? That was a very rare instance I highlight. That's why I share it, because it's like, that's a marked moment, right? That's not normative, at least not in my experience. But it reminded me that when we choose to trust God, that he is the owner of it all. When we choose to say, Lord, what I have belongs to you, not to me, and I want to steward it the way you call me to, God reminds us that he is there with us. His heart is for us, not against us. He's that generous God, right? The generous God who's revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The very God who has known our sin. He knows everything about us. He knows the depth of our thoughts, how they spiral into sin, the actions, the words we've said. And he says, hey, I'm rich in mercy. I've got mercy for you for that. I've got grace for you for that. I'm with you every step of the way. And it's just a reminder. And then the last thought would just be in community, meaning we don't want to do this on our own. I'm so thankful that you are here together in this retreat. You are here together to sharpen each other like iron sharpens iron. And maybe this would be even something you open up to each other about. Or maybe you get back home and if you're married, you talk to your spouse about it. Have a conversation. Don't, don't start accusing or letting things escalate. You know, take a time out if you need to, if it gets there. But just have a, have a good, prayerful, calm conversation with your spouse or, or people that you can trust. Maybe there's people, again, who have wisdom in this area and you can open up to. But, hey, let me pray for us and then we'll have a little bit of time. If you have any questions, I'll, I'll take a few maybe uh, from the, the, the front here. And then just afterwards, I'll be available to talk if you'd like to talk. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a generous God. We thank you that you have been so generous to us through the gospel and that you have truly blessed us, Lord, that even though we may not feel like particularly uh, rich men, Lord, we know that in the grand scheme of world history and even the global economy today, we're pretty blessed and we're thankful for that. We're thankful to be here. And we are asking that you would help us grow as men of generosity and also use us to be those disciple makers of others, whether it be our own families or other men you place in our lives, to help them also grow in being generous because we know that is true life, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share as you have shared with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.